and welcome to Hospice Insights, The Lawn Beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Hospice Insights, Strategic Restructuring for the Future series, not just an org chart, corporate and regulatory considerations for hospice transactions. Hospices are increasingly looking to buy, consolidate, or merge to achieve administrative efficiencies and expand growth opportunities. Transactions between hospices present unique regulatory challenges that shape corporate and transactional structures and often require looking beyond the client's organizational charts. Join me, Meg Pekarski, in conversation with Adam Royal and Aaron Burns, where we discuss key considerations and strategies in hospice transactions. Aaron, Adam, and Adam, I will not call you Andrew in this entire <laughs> podcast. So for those of you, you know, listeners, you know that Andrew Brenton is on our team and this is Adam Royal, uh, who has been on other podcasts, but I'm glad that you're you're here today to, to join us. And obviously, Aaron, you're a regular. So let me just sort of start out by saying, you know, why are we having this this podcast on this topic. I mean, we've been doing a ton of work in this area, and which is why we created this whole strategic restructuring series where we didn't just talk about transactions. We talked about creating network models and pursuing upstream opportunities. And this one is focused on merging with another hospice or buying another hospice. Um, and I think this is probably going to be one of many. And and Adam, we're so grateful for you to have joined our team because you have a ton of experience in, in corporate uh, transactions, which you've been really able to um, elevate our team. And obviously here at Hush, we have a lot of other um, corporate lawyers that support us, but you're really committed to the hospice space and have been leading all of our um, hospice transactions. And I think that there, we could have like a four-hour podcast on this. So we're going to give the sort of high notes and expect that we'll probably drill down on some of the concepts we talked about today and in later episodes. But I think when did the start and, and when did our work start and, and why do we have so much work in this area is obviously people are preparing for Medicare Advantage. They're, you know, preparing for what could be pretty consequential rate decreases. People are looking uh, to create administrative efficiencies and they're looking to diversify their business and all these other things. So um, I think especially in the nonprofit sector, there has been renewed interest. I mean, I used to have these conversations 15 years ago and they pretty much stopped after the first meeting because people would say, well, but but I've been around for 35 years and I want to maintain my independence. And I think those conversations are changing because I think folks are, are understanding that the new landscape may value different things than what are their current strengths. And there could be real benefits of coming under one umbrella or merging together. And so uh, with that in, in the backdrop, and obviously we do, you know, traditional buying and selling of hospices too, but in the nonprofit sector, these are usually structured as member substitution models most often. But but that's sort of um, talk, Adam, um, before we get into deep in the regulatory issues, like 
Can you just say what is a member substitution and why is that a thing in nonprofits? Yeah, so a member substitution is essentially the nonprofit version of, of what you would call a stock purchase or share purchase in the for-profit sector. And essentially you're buying the membership interests or ownership interests, as you would call them in the for-profit sector of the nonprofit. Um, and so when you're trying to merge two nonprofits together, so to speak, um, one way of doing that other than an actual merger would be um, the member substitution where one of the nonprofits becomes uh, the sole member of the other nonprofit. And then you have them two kind of um, affiliated together. Got it. And, you know, you and I are working on um, one project right now where we're looking at should we do a member substitution model where, you know, the member substitution is by one of the existing entities. So there's one entity at the end of the day, or do we want to take this opportunity to create a parent subsidiary model, which might position them better for service diversification, geographic service diversification, probably, you know, from a business standpoint, a more sophisticated model in terms of managing risk, mm -hmm. managing assets like real estate assets and, and whatnot. And so I think anytime we work on these projects, Adam, there isn't one way to do something, right? Uh, <sighs> you and I were just having a conversation before this where we said, you know, as a regulatory lawyer, there's law sort of dictates what you must do. And there's a lot of gray that I can play in. But for you on the corporate side of things, it's really tell me what you want to do and we'll find a way to do that. There aren't that many sort of stop signs in terms of how you want to um, structure things. Right. There are so many options from the corporate side of things, but but not so many from the regulatory side of things. And that's kind of what makes these transactions interesting is you have to balance those two uh, perspectives um, and see what corporate structure is optimal or perhaps the only possible structure from a regulatory perspective. And so like going back to the member substitution idea that can pan out any number of ways, like you mentioned, you could have um, a member existing uh, nonprofit become the member of another existing nonprofit, or you can put another parent company on the top and have three entities and couple that with dissolving an entity or letting to continue to exist. Um, and so that's where kind of the regulatory considerations come into play. No, exactly. And I, I think that when you've seen one member substitution, you've seen one member substitution and mm -hmm. Mike Millward, who um, was on the podcast talking about the California Hospice Network, it was through their governance structure about trying to be very horizontal and how they were managed. Um, but again, the corporate methodology for doing it, it still was a member substitution. Um, and there is a new entity sort of on top who's the sole member of all of the other hospices. But through your governance, which is 
you know, where a lot of the flushing out of, well, how is this really going to work and who makes decisions and all of that stuff, there can be a lot of flexibilities there. And so those are really important conversations. But, um, you know, one thing is, you know, we always say sky's the limit, you can do whatever you want. One of the, the questions you really need to think about sort of simultaneously is the regulatory um, considerations. And let's sort of talk about IPUs in a second, but Choi Chow, so fancy words for change of ownership and change of information. These are the documents you file with CMS. And this is actually not an intuitive area of the law. Um, and Aaron, you have a lot of experience and you've worked on some very large transactions and mm -hmm. sort of tell us, you know, some of the, the interesting points and when's something a chow versus a choy and, and what are some of the complications there? Yeah, and I'll just say too, uh, it's been great having Adam join the team because these hospice transactions are you know, more complicated than just your average business deal. Um, we have gotten involved in deals where the corporate side of things, you know, is handled by a different firm and we're, we're happy to do that, but sometimes they're 10 steps ahead and they have not even thought about the regulatory considerations, um, which can really uh, put some time constraints on your deal uh, and could impact timing of closing and, and things like that, whether you need a management services agreement uh, there's a lot of consideration. So it's great to have both uh, the corporate side and the regulatory side uh, in-house. Um, yeah, so this is one of the biggest factors that you have to determine when you're doing a transaction is, is your transaction from a Medicare perspective a choy or a chow? So a change of information or a change of ownership. A lot of deals these days, um, as Adam said, it's like an asset purchase or, um, you know, like a member substitution. Those are generally considered changes of information and from a Medicare perspective. So, and a chow is typically when your tax ID, the um, the agency that's being purchased, if their tax ID is changing, um, you know, really a new owner is stepping in and kind of getting rid of the old owner, changing things about the provider, that's often a chow or a change of ownership. There's two kind of considerations from a Medicare perspective on what you're doing too, not just, you know, once you classify it, is timing um, and also assumption of liability. So with a CHOI, uh, you're often going to have a less lengthy processing time. You're not, um, there's no need to kind of switch over a tax side or switch over a PTAN to a new provider. You're essentially stepping into the shoes of the existing provider and you can continue to operate as, as it was. Um, with a change of ownership, there's more kind of steps involved from the Medicare side. Uh, you need approval and you'll get a tie-in notice once that approval has gone through from CMS. And it's not until you get that tie-in notice, which can take many months, um, that you're the new hospice or the buyer is now officially kind of the owner in Medicare's eyes of the, the hospice that's being bought. Um, then you also have to consider 
the other kind of licenses and certifications that hospices have. Uh, and again, I think corporate, the corporate side can lose track of these things. And they're important, not just your Medicare number, obviously is important, but Medicaid, your state license is super important. Um, and each state typically has their own definition of what a change of information is or what a change of ownership is. And so just because Medicare defines it as a choice and you're like, great, we're going to be able to kind of breeze through this. Um, the state may be different and the state may require advance notice, uh, whereas Medicare doesn't. So there's a lot of considerations that need to go in on the front end and should be kind of done simultaneously as you're structuring your transaction. And again, let me say again, not intuitive. Uh, <laughs> exactly. These things are not intuitive and very complex. And if you do these things incorrectly, which we've been on the back end of these, really parade of horribles go on and on. Like people th who thought they merged into one provider number actually didn't. So then they had massive cap liability on one of their numbers and all this stuff. So, you know. I think it's interesting too, from a corporate perspective, they talk about like mergers, acquisitions. Um, those have different meanings to Medicare. And so if you look at say the 855A, the enrollment application, they list out what those mean and each one is different. So when, for example, you're talking about a merger from a corporate perspective, it may not be actually a merger from a Medicare perspective or uh, you may not be able to merge even though you can merge from a corporate side. Their CMS region five believes that hospices cannot merge. Um, there's only limited providers that can merge. So you may be required to do a change of ownership or a CHOI filing. Um, so yeah, not intuitive. A lot of work behind the scenes to kind of figure out what needs to be done. Uh, oftentimes reaching out to regulators on an anonymous basis to kind of, as you say, Meg, sometimes grease the skids um, mm -hmm. to, to make sure that what we're doing is going to be approved. I think we can't emphasize enough that doing this regulatory stuff in the beginning instead of baking something from the corporate side and then we come on the regulatory side and be like oh yeah no that doesn't yeah. work or you know or there's these other considerations and they could be cons do you still want to go with that like for example we worked on something where um, because a lot of the nonprofit work we're doing, they're hospices that might already be, they're in the same service area. And so they might not need two provider numbers. And so it's like, I want to reject this provider number. But if they have an IPU, that can become very difficult because the certification is tied to that provider number. And, but, you know, when, you're assuming a Medicare provider number, you're assuming all of their liabilities um, going back from the beginning of time, right? And through the corporate documents, you can try to manage that risk. But when you assume that provider number, it is yours and you can get indemnification. But from a, you know, the government's perspective, you are inheriting every problem they ever had and potential repayments and all these other um, things. And so, you know, if you could reject the number, it's like, well, yeah, why not? Or, but sometimes it's not possible or, you know, what you can also do is just terminate that number as opposed to reject it and all of that stuff. But I think you and I, Aaron, 
uh, have worked on <laughs> very complicated slide decks to explain different options, which it doesn't mean there's only one way to do it. It really comes down to the pro con mm -hmm. of this. And it's like, you said you wanted this, but maybe this pathway isn't the best way to achieve that because there's some downside there. So we keep calling Adam our, our unicorn because he's going to be this merger of the hospice regulatory and the hospice corporate stuff together because Adam is leading up all of our deal work on, on the hospice side, which is just fantastic um, and really helpful. And so, so let's say for whatever reason, because most nonprofits will say, ah, I'm not that worried about liability of this other, I've done my due diligence, like I'm not that concerned, maybe, right? Maybe they say that, well, right. <laughs> we would caution them, like, have you been listening to all of like this retroactive, you know, repayment, you know, audit liability, all this other stuff, but, why is protecting yourself against liability? Now here it's a little bit different, right? In the nonprofit world, like that entity may go away, like in all practical purposes, it's yours. There is no pot of money to go after. Like if it's a private transaction, you can go after the prior owners for this. Um, but when it's nonprofits, there is no one really to go back to. So I think diligence is really important because in the nonprofit world, I mean, yes, you can unravel this and th that I've seen that happen, but you know, that's not something that's usually going to happen. So risk allegation is, you know, practically speaking, not the same as you would do it in a for-profit transaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then I think also one of the peculiarities of hospice is the additional risk of audits and how you should address that um, in the purchase agreement um, and throughout the transaction. Because as we've seen um, like this group working on audits, um, what's an actual problem and what an auditor might perceive as a problem that could result in an overpayment that the hospice then has to deal with in some capacity um, can come up a lot. And, and that can come up whether or not there's sort of some kind of issue in fact um, compared mm -hmm. to what an auditor finds. And we could well, do yeah. a whole podcast on diligence um, or a whole series on why diligence is so important and disclosure schedules. Um, but it goes to protecting the owner or the, the buyer uh, from that future liability. Yeah, well, and because ultimately, if you assume that provider number and they audit for something prior to you taking over the business, you're still going to get the demand letter. They're still going to, you know, recoup this overpayment from your cash flow now and, right. you know, all of those things. You can go, you know, chase the, the other owner um, for this amount, but which I think, you know, in in for-profit transactions, obviously you have a lot of terms around indemnification and, you know, you might escrow certain funds for a period of time to deal with, you know, potential liabilities and whatnot. I don't know, you know, what you want to um, get at there, Adam. Yeah, so that's that's one option is kind of to escrow 
some funds from the purchase to deal with uh, potential liabilities post-closing. Um, and another sort of more practical approach that we've seen that's sort of particular to the audit risk is including in the indemnification provisions of the purchase agreement that um, the indemnified party rather than the indemnifying party uh, gets to control the defense in um, in certain situations, uh, chief among them an audit. Um, and the reason that's important for the purchaser is audits can have uh, significant cash flow consequences depending on how you respond to the demand letter. So um, whether you make a voluntary repayment or um, allow recoupment or request extended repayment schedules, those are all things within the purview of whoever is controlling that defense. And so um, for us dealing with hospices as a, as a purchaser, we'd like to see the purchaser um, being able to control that defense, which is not something you would typically see as a default position in most um, transaction documents. But if I'm selling, I want to control the defense because it's my money you're playing with and I want to choose my lawyers and because we're, we're, um, you know, we're representing a number of hospices and audits where they have already sold the company, but we're essentially taking up the defense and whatnot, but because, Again, you know, the the buyer is going to say, well, you owe this money and you say, OK, well, then I want to say in in what we concede on, what we appeal, you know, all those different types of things. And so, again, in the nonprofit context, those issues are not as prominent, but I think they need to be thought about just in a different way. They're more do you feel comfortable moving forward in this transaction? Because, you know, there isn't likely, unless if there's a giant foundation at the end of the day that's going to continue on after the hospice is sold, you know, there aren't really going to be resources to go back to. So I think getting very comfortable from a diligence standpoint. Um, and, and I think as we close up here and talking about structure, you know, a parent subsidiary model, uh, most of the nonprofits we work with, even very large nonprofits, they are single entities that they run all of their business lines out of one legal entity. They might have a separate foundation. But I think as we look as an industry to expand beyond a single service kind of organization into I'm going to do supportive care. I'm going to do case management. I'm going to do palliative care. I'm going to do adult daycare. I'm going to do child daycare. I'm going to do a whole bunch of different things. Suddenly your risk profile starts looking different. These are very distinct kinds of businesses. You might be owning more real estate. And so Adam, you and I are working on a project right now where, you know, adding a parent and creating subsidiaries does add a layer of complexity and you need to do the cost benefit analysis. But I think if you have a dream of growing your business into a continuum of let's say geriatric advanced care, you know, uh, advanced illness, um, that you might want to think about 
how you integrate, if you're doing member substitutions, how you're integrating them into your corporate structure. Um, because the time to do that is sort of when you're in the transaction, not like, oh, we did this transaction and now we want to do it three years later. It sort of makes sense to do it if you're coming together and merging or thinking of merging is do you really envision creating other service lines or bringing another entity into the fold and doing another member substitution and whatnot. So yeah, it's it's kind of a chance to to forecast uh, what the goals are um, for for the client. And like you said, the efficiencies of a, a parent model are really realized when uh, when you do start diversifying service lines and and that's when it makes sense to have more subsidiaries and um, and those efficiencies. You can you can kind of achieve those at that stage. And I think the role of lawyers here is to ask good questions. I think a role of any good lawyer is always to ask good questions and be curious, and get um, our clients to think about what is it that you want to do, because anything might be possible, and is to talk about guiding questions. What are your goals? What do you want to look like? You know, what's your dream here? Because then if we ask good questions, that will sort of funnel down how um, this might be structured. Because I think a wrong way to do it is to say, everyone else is doing a parent subsidiary model. I'm going to do that. But like, why do I want to run two hospices in a single service area if I never want to expand or do anything different? Why do I want to have three entities doing something that one could do? Like, and your right. and your goal is administrative efficiency. Well, that doesn't add up, right? But if the dream is five, seven years, there might we might bring someone else into the fold and we want to expand geographically and go across state lines and blah 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 you know like and it sounds um like we're doing therapy here but like what is your dream what do you want your life to be like and you know what is your vision for your organization and you know i've been doing board retreats to sort of be part of these conversations the strategic planning not just about um, you know, mergers and stuff, but just about the landscape and starting to think big. And I, I, I think that hospices need to change to stay alive and there's no one size fits all. But I, I think that we need to be asking ourselves new and different questions and we need to dream big. We need to get out of our silo of, well, I'm just a hospice that cares for terminally ill people with a six-month prognosis or less. No, I help manage and improve the quality of life with people with advanced illness, and I can provide case management, and I can do symptom management, and I can manage costs, and I can, you know, do all these different things and sort of, um, and that's what's fun about this work that I, I really enjoy, and I, I know you do, Adam, as well. And of course, you love Choi Chow, so I don't want to leave you out, Aaron. But, um, you know, that you are helping. I think every time we work on these projects, there is a dream, there is a vision, and it's fun to help people build their future, which is, I think, for not-for-profit healthcare in particular with the transactions we're working on. I think we're really helping to create thriving organizations for the future. And it's it's fun to be a part of that. Exactly. Yep, it is. Um, 
yeah, it's fun to work on the transactions and I've definitely enjoyed working on them with this team, um, kind of seeing the regulatory side of things as well. Well, I don't love running deals like Adam does. I do love the regulatory side of it and the Choi Chow. Um, but yeah, I agree. Helping hospices kind of position position themselves well into the future is is rewarding. Well, awesome. I think we'll bring the gang back together here for another episode because we could drill down on about 100 different topics uh, that we just briefly touched on. But I think in closing, thinking about these ideas, the corporate and regulatory side together and not in isolation and at the same time and because I think it's ultimately because we're all about efficiency, right? Like it's going to be a, a lot more efficient to, you know, you know, have that tension that can exist between corporate and what's permitted from a regulatory standpoint sort of out at the outset and not that we need to be militant about the regulatory things, but you don't want to go down so far a pathway and have done all this drafting and then suddenly, oh, wait, you know, someone has an IPU and now this sort of throws things, you know, up in the air. And we had a client that got us involved very early in a transaction and, you know, we were able to map it and achieve the objective um, before they got too far down a path of, of drafting. So I think that, you know, there can be a lot of value to add there. So terrific. Well, this is a lot of fun and it's fun to do this work with both of you. And I think we're we're doing good things in the world. So yay team. So, and thanks for listening. And remember to um, follow us on your, your favorite podcast resource and um, leave a comment. That would be terrific. And uh, we really appreciate you listening. Well, that's it for today's episode of Hospice Insights, The Law and Beyond. Thank you for joining the conversation. To subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at hushblackwell.com or sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, may the wind be at your back.